Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club of California. Good evening. I'm Ryan Phelan. Welcome to tonight's program hosted by the Long Now Foundation and Commonwealth Club World Affairs. Before we get started, a few housekeeping details like silence your phone, please. And if you have questions for the uh, speaker, you have a question card by your seat. If you're joining us online, you also can make use of the YouTube channel chat for your questions. For those of you here in person, copies of Chris's book, Infectious Generosity, will be made available to everyone here, compliments of the Ken and Jacqueline Broad Family Fund. After, I know. Their generosity continues. They're hosting a wine reception this evening after the talk, and uh, you can have uh, Chris sign your book during the reception. Moderating tonight's panel is DJ Patil. He's the general partner at Great Point Ventures, former U.S. chief data scientist, and member of the Commonwealth Club and World Affairs Board of Governors. Now it's my pleasure to actually introduce Chris Anderson. As a visionary leader and curator of the much-loved TED conferences, Chris has been the convener of some of the most inspiring minds and ideas we're spreading. Back in 1990, my husband Stuart Brand spoke at the very first TED conference, and throughout that decade, TED was by invitation only. It was a very elite group paying significantly for the exclusive opportunity to attend. I saw the big transition happen when Chris Anderson acquired TED from the founder, Richard Saul Werman. Chris turned TED into a nonprofit organization, and he quickly allowed the TED Talks to now reach a much broader community by making the content freely accessible online. Then he gave away the brand, allowing organizers all over the world to create their own TEDx events. Fifteen years later, there have been more than 25,000 TEDx talks, 200,000 talks archived online, and all of that is generating more than 1 billion views a year. That's infectious generosity. Please welcome to the stage Chris Anderson and moderator DJ Patil. All right. I am delighted to be here with Chris Anderson to discuss his latest book, Infectious Generosity, The Ultimate Idea Worth Spreading. And Chris, this book is phenomenal. Thank you for writing it, first of all, because uh, I have lots of takeaways. But I think we should just start with the premise of the book and why spend your time writing this book? Thank you, DJ. Thank you, Ryan. Thank you, Ken. Thank you, everyone. It's so great to be back in San Fran. Familiar faces and friends. It's very moving, actually. I got depressed. I got so glum at how my techno-optimism of the 90s and early aughts had kind of been crushed by a decade of disappointment online. Like, social media was supposed to be the thing that connected the world, and there was so much possibility there. And instead, the world seems to be getting meaner, and we all know different versions of this story. I can't stand it. I think it's really dangerous. I think if we don't do something about it, we won't be able to solve anything else, because we are in danger of giving up humanity's superpower, which is to cooperate. We're poisoning each other with disaffection, disgust, hatred, outrage, etc. So is there anything that could be done about it? And this, this book is a hopeful, determined, possibly desperate, you will be the judge, attempt to find a pathway that can fight that and find a different way. Let's dig into that a little bit more, because the two words, infectious generosity, are two very interesting choices of words. You know, infectious implying the viral aspect of things, but generosity is also a strange concept in some ways. So it is. It is. Um, it's, it's, it's kind of a boring word in, in itself. Like it's a Sunday school word. 
And the question is, so, so what hit me was this. So I, I started thinking about this in, seriously during the pandemic. And pandemic, you've got this tiny little invisible virus. It's nothing. It's a few atoms. You change the shape of it, and it changed the world. It shut down the world economy. So you don't have to be big to be powerful, just infectious. And, and the mathematics of infectiousness is incredible. Something can have not much effect at all. Like, imagine a beautiful story, for example. Can you make a beautiful story infectious? Well, you make it a bit more beautiful, a bit more beautiful, and a few more people hear about it. If you can get it so that 10 people will pass it along to 11 people, suddenly that story reaches millions in time. So what does it take to allow generosity and, if you like, stories of generosity to go viral? Because if we can do that, we will change how we think about each other. Well, you've helped create one of the most viral platforms out there. If we asked everyone out there to raise their hand, if they've shared a TED Talk, it's definitely 100%. And so if, if, we're stick- if only out of embarrassment for being shown up. <laughs> well, uh, it, it, it's, so, it's such a phenomenal, like the content that you've provided is such a phenomenal gift. And we'll get into that a little bit in a minute. But if we're sticking on that COVID analogy, since COVID turned us all into armchair epidemiologists, to use that analogy of what is the R naught of, uh, of, if I remember before, the viral coefficient being greater than one, what is it that it takes to make something go viral, have an R naught greater than one? Right. So the difference between R naught, yeah, being below and above is, is everything, as we said. So the book is an attempt to find that playbook. And with the researcher, I did a lot of digging. I found amazing stories of people who, just slightly under the radar, are doing beautiful things. So it's all forms of generosity, right? It's not just writing a check. It's just simple acts of human kindness that someone notices. And the book is an attempt to extract from them a kind of a playbook. There's lots of elements to it, but I mean, some of the big ones are one, I mean, you just have to evoke emotion. You know, so much goodness is sort of earnest and impressive, but, but if you could trigger that, oh my goodness, that, that human being... Did that? That warm, that warmness, that's deep. Suddenly that that gets shared. Creativity. Some people are able to show insane levels of creativity. If you can do that, that makes all the difference. So my example in the book is you want to clean up the streets in your neighborhood. So you organize volunteers to come together and do it. Fine. That's nice. You might take pictures, post a video. In Japan, when they did it, they dressed up samurai warriors and used swords to sort of, you know, pick up this trash in the most glorious way. Of course, those videos went viral. And as a result, thousands of other groups formed. Insane creativity. Courage. Deep courage gets noticed. Daryl Davis, an African-American musician, was puzzled why people seem to hate him, some people, because of the color of his skin. He reached out to the local leader of the Ku Klux Klan to have a meeting. They had a tense meeting. Well, I thought actually was phenomenal about the story, which you go into in the book, is like that member of the KKK actually didn't know that Daryl was black. Yeah, that's right. So that (laughs) was like out of a movie. That was a a bit of a bolt out of the blue, right right when the thing (laughs) happened. And and they, you know, some ice clinked during the meeting and they all leapt to their feet because they thought someone had drawn a gun. Tense. They formed a friendship. Weirdly, they kept meeting. Daryl went to KKK rallies. And eventually, to cut a long story short, his friend left the KKK. Dozens of others did as well. And his story, of course, got picked up by media, by CNN. It was spread around the world because you don't see courage like that every day. When you see it, you go, wow. And so, again, think about that. As a result of his courage, Daryl Davis has shown millions of people what it can look like to perform what I think is one of the most important acts of generosity in the age we're in, bridging. Bridging. It's really hard to bridge between people who are divided, but to listen to someone with respect, wow, that that can change everything. So that's another huge one. And then there's other things as well. But that points to the playbook exists. We can break out of our normal, oh, I'm so disappointed. I tried really hard and no one paid any attention. Well, try some different things and you never know. I think one of the things that might be helpful is, you know, I, as I was reading it, living in this area, we're a city with lots of challenges right now. 
And there's a critical moment of time where generosity is needed. A lot of people are disillusioned. And so what do you tell people who are, you know, walking regularly down the street? You meet somebody who could use some generosity. You talk really in depth about the challenges that we all face in that moment of time where courage is required or decision is. Maybe share a little bit about that. So all forms of generosity start with just finding a generous mindset. Um, and it's actually the hardest thing. It's not necessarily easy to do. I, I think it probably starts with by thinking about gratitude and trying to look at the bigger picture. But the first gift of any act of generosity is the gift of attention. And it sounds like a small thing. And in one way, it is a small thing. It's hard to do. As we all know, when we're walking to work, say, we're in our own zone, you know, especially in a place like San Francisco, when you, you can be deluged with people who are in need, who need something, and the last thing you want to do is to give them any attention because, I mean, come on, what is that going to lead to? But everyone can do something different with their generosity mindset. I'm not saying that everyone goes down this route, but I tell stories in the book of people who did. They turned and they looked at someone, and the act of feeling seen is actually, again, that, that triggers a powerful response in people right there. From that moment, lots of things can happen. In one case in the book, someone decided to offer someone a haircut because they were a hairdresser and they had their stuff with them. And that led to actually a global movement and a, this whole sort of idea of do something for nothing. Um, this or, is also fantastic because I follow this guy on, on, <laughs> on Instagram. And so maybe take a second to tell people Josh, a little bit about Joshua it. Joshua Coombs, Joshua Coombs. He, he was walking down the street in, I think it was London, and this, this happened. without He hadn't planned it, but... I mean, sure, the person who got the haircut said, this is great, nothing like this has happened to me, felt this sort of dignity and new motivation to figure out a pathway back off the streets. But for Joshua, it was equally meaningful. It was like, holy crap. He blew off other meetings he had planned for that day, and he was really moved by it and decided, I've just got to do this more. And what he had discovered is one of the things that we often don't really know. We kind of know it theoretically, we don't feel it, which is that the act of being generous makes you feel differently about yourself. It gives a sense of purpose, a sense of meaning, uh, probably a sense of happiness. The link between generosity and happiness is real. And so that can get a wheel turning. Now, it's not everyone's act of generosity to try and solve the homeless problem in a place like this. But the move from just thinking about your own stuff to wait a sec, what if I looked out and imagined, you know, there's a cause I could research or there's someone who I know actually who I could give something to. That shift is huge. And a really, I think one of the key things that's really hit home to me so hard, even since writing this book, is how asymmetric generosity is. We forget this. We're tempted to think a gift is a gift. Someone has it, they give it up, they've lost it, someone else gets it. Zero sum it is almost always not zero-sum. I mean, in the case of money, it's kind of obvious a rich person could give an amount of money. That may cost them actually nothing, but it can be life-transformative for the person who gets it in some circumstances. But every other form of generosity is like that. The generosity of sharing a connection, sharing your network with someone. It can take you 10 minutes and a sort of carefully thought-out email to three of your friends, you need to know this person, may I introduce you to them. For that person, it can change their life. And so this is the magic of generosity generally, that every single form of it actually is anchored in, it's easier for the giver. The giver loses less than the receiver receives. And actually, when all said and done, the giver loses nothing because they are surprised by the happiness and sense they get. So You actually have a, a quote from Thomas Jefferson in the book which I think is one of my favorite. Right, so he famously says, he was there speaking about the gift of knowledge or the gift of ideas. He who lights his candle at mine obtains the light and I don't lose my light. So it's a complicated quote because actually when you give away knowledge, you do lose something. You lose the right to exclusive exploitation of that knowledge. But still, the point is, in many, many, many cases, giving knowledge costs you very little, and the gain is amazing. Sal Khan started putting videos on the internet, took him an hour to put a video up. Now, those videos are seen by like millions of people. I mean, the asymmetry is mind-boggling. So in a world of generosity, if we could make a world where generosity was more embedded, all boats rise. 
This is a huge deal. It is massively, massively positive sum. Well, you actually ran an experiment. You, you, you put your money where your mouth is, so to speak, on, <laughs> on this. And so maybe tell us about the $2 million experiment you ran. Right. So we had a crazy donor couple in the tech community who made some money and they wanted to be generous, pass it on, but they wanted to learn something as well. And so we brainstormed with them what we called the mystery experiment. So I recruited a bunch of people on, on, on Twitter who didn't know what they were signing up for um, and picked 200 of them. And they, they kind of received what was really the ultimate scam email. You know, congratulations. <laughs> we would like to wire $10,000 into your PayPal account, no strings attached. Okay. <laughs> so it took a bit of persuading, but when they took the money... I mean, what would you predict they would do with it? There was one string attached. The string attached was they had to spend it in three months and they had to tell us what they spent it on. But it was literally, it was explicit. You can spend it on anything. Two thirds of that money was spent generously. This is on average across all recipients, all seven countries, different income levels, two thirds. It is not what most economists would predict, I think. And I had the chance to speak to people afterwards and say, why, why did you do that? And they said, they almost all gave versions of this. It was like, if I'd won the money in a lottery, it would have been different. But because this money was donated to me, because it was given to me as an act of generosity, I felt seen and I felt I had to pass that forward. I wanted other people to be seen the way I had. You know, I, that was a beautiful feeling. I wanted to pass it on. And so the shocker here is that biology is our friend. Biology is truly our friend. There are two, actually two big instincts. There's the initial desire for just to be generous in the first place, intense desire to be empathetic to people. Empathy is a, like it's a crude emotion. It doesn't always work out in the right way, but it is powerful. And when you see someone suffering, you want to help them. That is weird for, a, for, a, for an evolved animal that's supposed to be looking after their own interests. We actually, in many circumstances, we will even risk our lives to help someone else. So generosity is there deep inside every single human, except a few psychopaths. <laughs> and so is the desire to respond to generosity. Mm-hmm. And, and by the way, there's another instinct, which is really interesting, which is not just to respond to generosity. If you see someone out there being generous to someone else, that itself prompts generosity in someone. So I'm going, wait a sec. These newly confirmed facts about the science of generosity, combine that with the fact that we're in a connected world where suddenly we can reach not just our small community, but literally thousands or millions of people. And we can share videos. You can see a video of someone doing something kind and that that can have an effect. That surely means that there's a possibility here for something absolutely amazing to be true in this world. Why aren't we just sharing acts of kindness. It's in everyone's interest to do it and feeling good about each other and feeling better about each other. And why, instead of that, is the opposite happening? And we're sharing reasons to distrust and dislike and hate each other and talking ourselves down. What's that about? But at least the potential for the upside, when you put those pieces together, is truly astonishing. Chris, as we're talking about this, you know, this is something that I thought through in the book, and you raise it as a question, what's the role of generosity versus government and public Mm -hmm. policy? And, you know, the way you're talking about this biological instinct we have to look out for each other, you think about these questions of public policy, like universal basic income, similar experiments, like the one you just described, the largest stimulus programs ever for the United States have been put forth in the Biden administration. And you see this similar conversations in other countries. And that seems to land differently when it's government versus a person. So as you've gone on this journey, how should we think about the different roles we play as individuals, systems like religious organizations, philanthropic larger entities, city, state, federal governments, etc.? Obviously, what governments do is incredibly important to pretty much everything. It's not a topic I actually know very much about. My lens on the world is as a media entrepreneur, an entrepreneur, and someone who's interested in what individuals can do. So I don't 
discuss in great depth what could happen in policy. I do think that there is an incredibly important role in philanthropy to be the risk takers and to show governments what, uh, what might be possible. There's so many great examples of philanthropists who've tried something and when they've proven it, it has unlocked two orders of magnitude more resources from the government because there is the working model. Yeah, we used to call it scout and scale. Scout and scale. Say, hey, each of these towns or individuals is an experiment. We just now need to figure out what the commonality is to accelerate it. Right. So the lens of the book is what we as individuals can do as opposed to what we can get angry about of the government not doing or whatever. I do wonder myself, I didn't write about this in the book, whether in some future governments could actually give generosity a chance to work its magic and could say to people, for example, if I was Joe Biden, I would be tempted to invite to the White House 200 of America's richest people and say to them, it's amazing what you've achieved. I would like to give you the chance to be heroes. We happen to have 200 really challenging and important infrastructure projects that, that will make a huge difference collectively to America. And it would just be amazing if some of you would sign up to support these. As opposed to, we're going to raise your taxes 20%. And there's a different psychology here um, that just possibly would, would make a difference. And I don't think this experiment has, has probably been tried. I personally think it's an experiment worth doing at some point. But in this connected era, I believe passionately it's a world where we need to reframe what generosity can be. And I think if we do, all kinds of other things, possibilities may come to the fore. Well, you know, as you talk about that, you know, I think you and I both sort of grew up in that, like that techno-optimist moment, myself being on the builder side of these technologies, you're also building on the media side. And we we're like, hey, this is going to be great. Mm. And then the systems, we see this version that we have now where one side isn't just opposed to another side. They want utter destruction of the other party or the other entity. And you can take this local politics, global, uh, national, you can take it to religious areas around the world now. And so what I'm really interested in is, in this question is, how do we actually use generosity to do what you described earlier, to bring ourselves to bridge that divide? Like, what can we do so that we're not falling into this trap? Yeah, I think it's incredibly hard and incredibly important. So one set of answers to that is trying to imagine how we would change what happens on social media, because arguably that is where a lot of this is bred. My diagnosis of the main thing that has gone wrong with social media is this, is that when social media platforms were designed, we were naive about human nature. We assumed that humans are basically good if you optimize systems for human choice, if you look at what humans click on and what they like and so forth, and then amplify that, that's going to be great. It's a win-win-win. The system will get better um, you'll have people's attention, so you can sell them ads and, you know, all the rest of it, and it'll be great. And they forgot, I think, that people aren't... User choice is not just a thing. User choice depends on which user you're talking about. We are complex people. At a minimum, we are a system one, to use Danny Kahneman's language in his brilliant book, Thinking Fast and Slow. You know, we're system one, fast thinkers, instinctive, our lizard brains, for want of a better term, and a little bit of system too, which is our reflective selves that are actually the we that we actually want to be. Our reflective selves will be the people who on our deathbeds will look back and say, am I proud of the life I lived? But our system one selves, our lizard brains, are in charge when we're doom scrolling, when most of our engagement with social media. And so what unfortunately, tragically social media algorithms have done is they, they've been optimized to turn us all into lizards and they've been successful at it. This is not a good thing. This is really not a good thing. And so the, I think the cure is for both the platforms themselves and for us to figure out how to empower our reflective selves over those lizard brains. And I think it's a solvable task. You're one of the top five conveners in the world. 
with the TED platform. And so you talk a little bit about this book, but maybe, you know, because we're here in, in the center of Silicon Valley where these platforms are being created, the leaders are here, you know, you know, these leaders, what has that been like as you try to get them, you know, your, your chapter is take back the internet. How do we take back the internet? So it's hard. And a lot of people out there would say it's going to be impossible because the business models lock in the current mode. Those lizard brains may be unfortunately unpleasant in many circumstances, but boy, are they powerful and they hold people on for hours and hours and the ads depend on that. And so you're never going to persuade them otherwise. I may be naive here, but I actually don't think that that is an unsolvable problem. First of all, the people who create value at all the social media platforms are creative people who do not want to work for a company that is doing evil. Now, I actually think there is intense debate going on in these companies and has been for the last several years on how to fix this problem. I could be wrong, but I think that even the senior leadership, even though it's unquestionably true that the commercial incentives slow any change down, I think if it was really clear that there was door A, make 40% more money. Door B, avoid destroying the public good. I think people would take door B. And there actually have been instances where some of the leaders have willingly taken down the value of their companies to try to, for example, appoint huge numbers of content moderators and all the rest of it. So I think it's worth trying to intensify that debate. There's a lot of good things that are happening under the surface. So if you take the most arguably the most toxic platform of all, X, mm-hmm. formerly Twitter. I mean, Elon Musk said something important when he first took it over, which was that his goal was to optimize unregretted user minutes. Now, regret is a function of the reflective mind. So that was the right thing to say. That was the right thing to say. Whether they are actually measuring that and taking it seriously, living up to it, you could definitely debate. Um, there are some. I don't know of... if we have to debate it because it's pretty. I mean, when the the guy is making anti-Semitic comments on, on, online, but you control the platform, yeah. there, there's almost this challenge that even if you have a generous spirit, you're kind of drawing the lines. You you get to draw the rule set, yeah. which is a it's a tension. It is. It is a tension. I get there is a legitimate amount of disgust and anger against what's actually happened. Whether Elon himself is anti-Semitic, he obviously has, has taken great pains to He's deny done a lot that and is trying to, arguably is trying to fight that. There, there's, one, there's one especially promising development um, at X, which is worth paying attention to, which is community notes. That has been dialed up strongly in the last year. So that is an attempt by Twitter X users themselves to identify when something is factually inaccurate or just really bad. And so so often, like quite quickly, posts that are wrong will get context added. I I think that's constructive. But look, the main point I'm making is that if they were serious about looking for unregretted user minutes, measure it and, and do what it takes to correct that. That means you've got to somehow ask questions of people's reflective selves after their experience of being on X for a bit. Do you have regrets? (laughs) Some people have regrets. My regret might be something that Elon posted, you know, but measure that. And if you can tackle that, that's one thing to do. I think the bigger thing I'd say just to people listening or watching is we've actually got a lot of power. We can train the algorithms to do things differently than they do by who you follow, who you like, You know, just stop it coming out of doom scrolling mode and saying, wait a sec, who can I find on here who is actually spreading great stuff, insight, wonder, delight, hilarity, kindness, generosity? Those people assuredly exist. I actually kind of crazily started a a search today on to create five awards for people who are doing some of those things to try to amplify them. And the good stuff is there if you look for it. And I don't think it's like we've got to shift from 10% to 90%. I think we probably have to shift from about 45% to 55%, and a lot changes. But I don't think it's impossible. Well, it's interesting because even like Instagram, you know, the original team of Instagram kind of 
put in a buffer when you hit sort of a, you went to, we were spending too much time. As you point out, TikTok has been forced to do this also in, with the regulations in China. But then, of course, when TikTok was acquired by Facebook, then it becomes the infinite scroll and keeps going. And so, you know, as you see these developments taking place with these platforms or X kind of going the way Twitter going the way it is, are you still a techno optimist or pessimist? So optimism, in my definition, is not a feeling or a prediction. I don't feel good about where things are. And I don't predict that things will get better. What I am is determined to try to find a pathway where they might. If you can shine, look, the future is literally not written. No one knows how this will play out. But if you can find a pathway and get agreement among good thinking people that that is promising, more people will walk down that pathway and at least there's a shot. So, so I think for me that the key phrase is determined optimism. We have to be determined optimists. Craig Venter said an amazing thing on the TED stage once, I thought, where he was asked, do you think the optimists are right or the pessimists? Mm. He said, I don't know. But I've observed this. It's the optimists who get things done. Interesting. That's very profound. Yeah. It's a very Craig statement. <laughs> uh, well, maybe t talk a little bit about that. You know, we see so many builders, innovators here that are taking things on. And I think about so many of the great nonprofits that are, are out there that are taking on these challenges, companies that are trying to take on this generous approach. For the people here and out there who are listening online, how can they take this ethos into their companies? I've seen entrepreneurs like Adam Nash, who's founder of Daffy, who's trying to create his whole company premise around how to donate money more easily. You see Adam's the shoes uh, that you're wearing is another example that you talk about. I'm not trying to make this product placement, but there's so many great examples of, of these things for the entrepreneurs and the builders. How do they instill a generous mindset into the values of their company? So this is the beautiful thing that in this connected age, a company I think would be crazy not to try to adopt a generosity strategy. You know, the stuff that Ted did in terms of giving away its content, giving away its brand, that was actually essential to Ted's success. If Ted had been not a nonprofit, but a business, that would have been the smart strategy because it is that that made Ted known and made, made things happen and work. In this connected age, the rules around what you hold on to and what you give away have changed. It makes total sense because it is relatively easy to give away amazing things to an infinite number of people at zero cost. Hello, why wouldn't you adopt a generosity strategy? And so I think any company or any group of employees in a company could gather for half a day to brainstorm the following question. What is the biggest, badass, craziest thing we could give away that we have? What is it? And there is a very high chance that, that giving away that thing could transform that organization's, that company's future. Because, you know, if it's done with audacity, if it's done with creativity, if it's done with boldness, who knows what happens from it? So a typical thing is just company to start with, you know, your knowledge base. What do you know that the world could benefit from? Are you sure in this connected age it's right for you to hold that inside a vault as opposed to giving it away and picking up the reputation that will come from that. I think every big company could consider putting on a free online learning course about the knowledge that they uniquely have, whether it's a manufacturing process or a coding process. Or, or, what, or what since I picked on Elon earlier, with, uh, I, you mean the fact that he, Tesla gave, out, gave away their patents? Yeah, you know, with some restrictions. You, you know, you don't do it stupidly. But what he said about the reason for doing that was so that he could recruit great engineers. This is exactly the point. He said, people do not want to work for a company. They want to work for a cause. And in this age, in this knowledge age, where all of the value that is created comes from the minds of brilliant people, they want to work for companies that are doing something that matters. Could you imagine so, if every VC and every board member asked this question, what kind of transformation we'd have? 
I think it would be incredible. I mean, the truth is that a lot of internet startups may be rolling their eyes at this because everyone, in a way, adopts this sort of freemium model. You know, here's an app, it's free, use it, you'll get some joy out of it. Until gotcha. <laughs> and, and, then, and then gotcha. And so what is generosity and what is just, you know, cynical marketing? Well, for me personally, I think of the open source movement and how central that has been to Silicon Valley and, and the ecosystem where we give software away, we give our time away to engineer a better solution that we can all benefit from. I mean, the power, the power of open source is incredible. The power of something like Wikipedia is incredible. I mean, it's part of the wallpaper now, but I mean, it is an incredible thing that the volunteered time of tens of thousands of people has created an incredible public good. I just think that there is much more of that that could happen. We are seeing also at this other layer of corporate world where there's been strong pushback against things like ESG and other kind of DEI programs and other areas. And so how should we interpret what both this awesomeness of generosity that it could foster in attracting people, but then at the same time, the market pushback, activists, investors, and others? Yeah. It's complicated. <laughs> I mean, there's ESG, that could be a whole, a whole other thing. I mean, the, part of the problem there is trying to combine three different things under one label. Weird that Exxon rates higher than Tesla, for example, on the ESG measurement scale. So, I mean, you can see why that can fall into disrepute. I think what matters is actual good. So there's a debate about DEI. Like there's too a debate, genuine. Debate, there's a debate on DEI, whether... whether the way it is sometimes rolled out in practice, whether that is genuinely helping companies or not. It's an inflammatory debate, and, and I, I see powerful arguments every which way in there. I think there is absolutely a right way to embrace inclusion in a company. It's important to do so. It's inclusion without tokenism is kind of the, the challenge that people need to solve. So there are debates here. What's not in debate is that brilliant people want to work for companies that are contributing to the future in some way. They do. And so if you want great people, you had better get your act in order to demonstrate that. Mm -hmm. I, th I think one of the things that also comes through just listening to you reading the book, but also reading through the examples is there has to be a degree of authenticity to that, to that, to, to that generosity. If it's just window dressing for this, it, it doesn't really work. And you almost talk yeah. about this of what makes a good TED Talk versus something that doesn't make the cut. Yeah, I definitely think that the good best TED Talk starts with generosity. If someone comes on stage with an intention to promote themselves or their company, it's a bust. If they come on stage with the intention to be generous, to share something that's buzzing around in their brain with many other people, that's a beautiful thing. But the whole question around intention is really interesting because one of the things that is getting in our way is that we are so quick to judge people if we can discover anything about their motivation that we think is suspect. I think generosity has always been suspect. It's always been, to some extent, selfish. Give and you shall receive. That's suspect. Give and your reward shall be in heaven. Okay, that's selfish. Um, give because it feels good for your conscience. I think we, we actually have to embrace especially in this connected age, what I call imperfect generosity. For God's sake, stop looking for the bad in people's intent. Look for the good. Mm -hmm. If almost every act of generosity in this connected age is going to have mixed motives, because if you're generous, it will boost your reputation. We're connected and it, reputation really matters. So of course that may be part of the motivation. That should be celebrated, not condemned, because we want to give people every reason they can to be generous. So embrace imperfect generosity. So not, like, if it's completely cynical, sure, forget that. But almost always people, ha people want to do something for the public good. And they're delighted with the fact that it may also generate in this connected area, era surprising mm. effects that come back to benefit them in some way. That's beautiful. Embrace it. Right. That's how it should be. Well, before we get to th these questions that are coming in are fantastic. I think you have another book here, <laughs> just looking at these. Uh, I'd love for you to talk about something that I think is so special because I've, I've been able to, as we talked a little bit, I've been so fortunate to see the firsthand impact of this. 
is an audacious prize. Hmm. And so I'd love for you to tell the audience a little bit about the audacious prize and how they might be able to take it with them and enact it in their own lives. Okay. So yeah, the, it used to be the Ted Prize. It's now the Audacious Project. So, so this came from an observation of just how miserable it is if you're leading a nonprofit to raise money. I view people running some of the world's best nonprofits as true global heroes. You know, they're sacrificing the money they could make for a cause that's bigger than them. And what do we do as a world to thank them for that? We make them spend 50 to 80% of their time trying to raise money. It is shocking. It's so broken. Why would we do that? Uh, And from the donor's point of view, there is something broken as well, in that so often the nonprofit projects that are presented to them, because they come at the end of 10 wearying meetings, they come over as kind of boring and it's like, please, will you fund our overhead for the next 12 months? That's not interesting. So how can you break that? And so the Audacious Project was an attempt to break that cycle and to say, first of all, to the nonprofit heroes, actually, what is your biggest dream if money was no object? Make the hair stand up on the back of my neck with something. When you ask that question, what you get back is incredible. There are teams out there that can change the world in the most astonishing ways. So you take the best of those, you help try and distill them into a workable, credible, actionable three or five year plan. And then you bring those plans to a group of donors at one time, say 20, 20 or 25 of them at one time. And you say, okay, we've got two days together. We're going to look at this in detail. You're going to look at the investment document. You're going to look at a video of the person. And at the end of the two days, we're going to decide which of these we're going to fund or not. Um, After we've left here, It's back to business as normal. Nothing will happen. So make the decision now or don't. And what started happening is that this works. At the end of two days, people are gathered around and someone will say, it's actually in each of the 10 is a different group of people. Someone will say, I'm persuaded. I would like to support this. Infectious generosity in a nutshell. Ping, ping, ping. I'm in, I'm in, I'm in, I'm in. In two minutes, you can get a commitment for $100 million dollars. We've been doing this now for five or six years. This thing works. It's absolutely freaking thrilling. Uh, the donors themselves are recruiting their friends to come and be part of it. Come and have the most expensive weekend of your life and cry. <laughs> How great is that? That's got to be great on a brochure. It's great. <laughs> it's great. And, and, and so in the last one we did in February, we, we raised just over a billion dollars for 10 projects. It was just amazing to see. And there's more that can happen here. So we can break this awful cycle and allow great projects. So my suggestion in the book was that this can be done at a community level. Gather a group of friends together. You may collectively not have enough money to build the local skate park that someone wants to put in or or the library or the park or the soup kitchen. But you might know people in the community who are doing amazing things. So find the best five of them and ask them to dream their biggest dream. What really could you do for our community? And then go and try to find the best local business leaders or philanthropists, the people who've made it, and tell them, we're going to give you an opportunity you've never done before. You can, you can be a local hero. We're going to present you amazing projects that you will have a chance to fund. I think there's a way of doing this that could transform the dynamics that happen in communities, that could bring rich and poor together, if you like, and could create amazing things because the people want to do this. And it's, it's just about breaking out of the cycle so that people can do it at one time with the visibility of each other. Generosity is infectious. We're human beings. We're a social species. In the right context, magic can happen. Fantastic. A number of questions here around this year in particular. It's an election here in the United States. People are faced with incredible cynicism. How do we fight it? It's it's really, really hard. I think I buy the theory that the extreme voices that we hear do not represent mainstream opinion, that just because of the dynamics we talked about, 5 or 10% of people have shaped the conversation. And actually, a lot of people are crying out for a different way of framing things. I think we need bridges, people who are willing to be courageous and stand up and say, wait a sec. You know, not 
everything the other side is saying is evil. Some of it I hate, but there is some sanity in there. Let's change the dynamic here. But look, I, I think it's extraordinarily hard to do this. And I think it's going to take a lot of people to fight to do it. We're wrestling right now at TED with what role we can play. We're determined to try to play a bit better of a, of a bridging role. And for example, bring people together and say, okay, before you have your debate, flip sides. Can, can you articulate what you think this person really cares about and why? You know, can we change the dynamic of the conversation? I hope there's a way to do it. I really do, because so much hangs on that. Yeah. Another train of thought here that is in the questions of how do you instill generosity in your kids or into the, you know, the training systems that we have for all these engineers that are out there? We don't need to instill it in our kids. It's in them. Humans are fundamentally generous. And if you look at the response to the next generation of someone like Mr. Beast on YouTube, I mean, they love him. You know, you gave a thousand people their sight. You, you are my hero. This is amazing. You know, like the instinct is to cheer it on. And um, there's all kinds of social experiments that show how generous kids ought to be. I just think it's visibility. It's visibility. I was speaking with someone today whose nine-year-old daughter had just seen an example of a young girl who lacked something and wanted to give her whole pocket money to that girl. If you give kids a chance to see need, they won't respond. So that's not a problem. And I'll highlight for the audience, if you have questions about the depth, because there's a lot of questions about the depth of Mr. Beast and the altruism and Ubmer of others, you have to really read the book because you actually go into quite depth about it. But we'll leave that for, for there. Yeah. But I, and I, I just say, don't look for perfection. If you look for perfection, you will hate Mr. Beast. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you, if, you look for, if you look for signs that he is inspiring millions of people to be their better selves. Well said. Is there a way that generosity can counteract misinformation and disinformation? Yeah, I absolutely think so. I mean, I think anyone who spends their time looking to do that online is being generous. It's a gift of time. I I mentioned um, the community notes feature on X and, you know, the people doing that, everyone volunteering for Wikipedia. There are so many people who actually are spending time doing that. I think there's a lot more that we could do. I actually think there's opportunity for a nonprofit to embark on this in a big way online and almost Wikipedia on steroids. But it's, it's, it's an important act of generosity, just any time you see it, to be willing to highlight it in a respectful way. Do you have advice for people how to do that? Because it, we're in this age of if you try to call out something, sometimes suddenly you're the target, um, yes. particularly people of color, women or other minorities. I, I really think it's hard. I think it's hard. I think it takes courage. Part of me sees some signs that the pendulum is swinging a bit back. Like, I think, I don't know about you, I, I think people are so sick of what we've become and how, how we are thinking of each other. It's not who we are. Humans are capable of more than this. So the Solzhenitsyn line is really important. You know, the line between good and evil does not run between countries and identity groups and classes. It runs through every human heart. If we are careful and thoughtful and reflective about it, we can find ways to nurture each other to be our better selves instead of our worst selves. A couple of questions came in. I think this is a classic two-parter, which is, what advice do you wish you had known 20 or 30 years ago? And also, who gave you the best advice that you find going back to? Hmm. I mean, the best, best advice, my parents were missionaries, and they, they lived a Medical life. missionaries. Med- medical missionaries. They had a belief system that I think is wrong, you know, that those a God with a plan for absolutely everything that they ever did and that their duty was to spread that word. But the fact that they were willing to be generous with their whole lives was both inspiring and daunting. But I think the piece of that that I have carried with me, and it's, mostly it's been daunting. And so what I wish I'd known 20 years ago is that this doesn't have to feel daunting your whole life that there is a way of finding your form of generosity that will become joyful. I didn't really find it until I had this incredible act of luck of coming into TED and realizing 
oh my goodness, giving away ideas, that's a way of being generous. And it's really joyful for me. Mm. So I think that's what I wish I'd known is that, you know, we so often frame generosity as, I know I should be doing a bit more, but God, it's bloody hard and I've got the family to deal with. So next year, it doesn't have to be that way. Because generosity can bring with it meaning and happiness, you can find that. And then that's beautiful. One of the things that I think you also talk about in the book is a follow on this is how do you decide making your anonymous versus public in your generosity? And sometimes that can also be a lightning rod on things. And so what's the advice for us as right. those who are trying to do this? So the traditional advice was always be anonymous. Because otherwise, clearly, your, your motives are, are mixed and problematic. So you must be anonymous. I think in the connected area, that has become bad advice. I think it's possible we can stay anonymous, but the story of generosity must be told. We're in an existential battle here in how we as humans think of each other. Every story of humans doing something for other people needs to spread. Told the right way, that story will spread. If someone else can tell your story, that's beautiful. If not, find a way to tell it. It doesn't have to be boastful. And the way you make it not boastful is to fully recognize that everything that you do that allows you to be generous comes from serendipity, comes from privilege, comes from things that we have had. And so that's true for, for everything. There's nothing to boast about, but what there is is things to celebrate and to share and to say, you know what, I tried this, it was amazing, it worked, people liked it, look what happened as a result. So th I think that's the mode that we have to get in, and, and I think it makes a big difference if we all give ourselves permission to go into this mode, stop dissing people for telling a story, for not being anonymous. Because if done the right way, that is the most beautiful thing. And otherwise, we're going to talk ourselves down and destroy ourselves. The stories we tell about ourselves shape who we are. We are telling stories right now of a dark and vengeful and dangerous species. And that shapes who we are. We become that. We've got to stop that and find a way of telling a different story of ourselves. I, I always think of it as if, you know... In the Voyager spacecraft, what, what viral video should we put on there? And it should be like, you know, the guy who walks into the river to save a dog. And there's like all these videos that are really feel good. And one of the things you talk about is, you know, I think of it as a filter bubble. And it's like, well, why not have a filter bubble, a little bit more of generosity in these feel good videos? And so I thought that was a really clever sort of prod for me of like, am I following things that are taking me down or following things that are giving me a little bit of boost to make myself better and be a better person. Yeah, absolutely. You know, every other part of our lives, we do this. We build these life hacks. You know, how do you persuade yourself to get up at a specific time or to, you know, to work out or to manage your diet? All of these things, you know, we've figured out life hacks, for, which, which is basically, this is your reflective self figuring out how to manage your lizard brain. In the realm of generosity, it's really important we do this. We, we, we figure out how to nurture the parts of ourselves that make us ready to do that. Gratitude is the number one thing. So I'll tell you a story. I woke up yesterday feeling so blue about a couple of things that happened. I just felt really disappointed um, and, um, and stressed. And I went swimming and I swam 30 lengths at the hotel I was in. Every length, I thought about one other thing to be grateful for. And I came out of that pool aglow. Like, it's so simple. When you stop and think, there's the obvious things. You know, I love my kids. I love my friends. That's great. You know, but then you go on from there. You know, how great is it that I've got work that's actually meaningful? How great is it that I live in a room where there's electrical sockets all around the wall that I can plug devices into that can heat my body or cool my body or clean the damn room or clean the dishes. That's amazing. I'm happy to be alive now. This is an amazing time to be alive. This you is know, like gratitude journal on super I, steroids. I, you know, <laughs> so, you know, just the fact that we can open our eyes and look around and every moment you look around, you are seeing something different. You are having a unique visual experience that no one else in the history of the universe has ever had. And the faces that you see, there is an incredible story behind each of those faces. 
It is an amazing thing to be alive. And it's so easy for us to forget that. And then bad things happen. It's actually just starting that gratitude journey. Magic will follow from that. I love that. I want to ask you about this one because this one really, I want to give voice to this because it's, I think when we often think of generosity is only dollars. Yes. And so the question is, if I make a generous charitable contribution, I receive a tax deduction. If I give my time, which is vastly more valuable, I receive no such donation. That doesn't affect me, but it might others. How can we change the infrastructure to support generosity of time and service? And how, how should we think about the dimensions of generosity? Hmm. I mean, you could definitely picture a world where the heroes of the world, like parents who look after the kids, you know, especially parents who look after kids that, that need special care or something like that, that is heroic. They give their time. They're not rewarded. A fair society would reward them, and it's an important piece of generosity. But I also think generosity carries with it its own reward anyway. You know, there are just so many different ways other than money to be generous that are worth thinking about. We've spoken about some of them of just giving attention and sharing knowledge and connections. There's also just the gift of creativity, of enchantment. The fact that one creative mind can enchant thousands of people in the era we're in, that is so beautiful. And hopefully someone does that, they get recognition back and so forth. But that's a beautiful thing. Hospitality, I think, is a beautiful act of generosity that can lead to so many other things happening. I think you, we could structure society more fairly, but also that gift of time probably brings with it its own joy. I always think about the, also some of these careers, like public servants, I think have an ethos of generosity by the choices they make or those that have served in the military, teachers, or what we saw during COVID. It was phenomenal in those first 100 days, and, and you highlight this in your book, of what first you know, healthcare professionals were doing, but also people sewing masks, doing all of this. Uh, we mm. really came together. Yeah, and and we so really did. and the question there is, how did we lose it? Because we suddenly went from being all in so generous, and then we kind of went into, rawr. <laughs> I don't know how exactly to describe it. And but I'm asking it from the position of like, what should we take away so when the next thing that happens, we don't make that mistake? I mean, there is evidence that humans, when they're most stressed, start to shift from me to we. You know, there's lots of wartime stories that uh, indicate that. The early part of the pandemic definitely demonstrated that. I think that's a beautiful fact about our, our sort of social psychology. I, I guess one of the things that I'm hoping is that in this moment now, when we are collectively stressed about the direction that we're all heading, can we harness that? If we can view that as this existential threat that is really imperiling all of us, that in itself potentially could persuade us, no, no, we have got to change this. So we need to huddle together and figure out a better damn way of organizing ourselves. Can we? I don't know. <laughs> well, you know, in the remaining few minutes we have left, I'd love for you to talk about this. You talk about a pledge in the book. Hmm. And, and I'd love for you to share what that pledge is and really... It's an interesting one of where it comes from, like from a historical, almost, <laughs> right. well, why don't you share it with us? Sure. So for me, this started actually from a point of view of guilt. Again, grew up religious, heard this guy at church talking about his own generosity, looking after refugees and how he'd come home exhausted. But before he went to sleep, he would remember that there was a child suffering more than he was. And so he couldn't sleep. He'd have to work on. And I was so freaking depressed by that. It was like... It's impossible to lead a good life. Life is going to be hell. If you want to be a moral person, you will be miserable your whole life. And, you know, Peter Singer has these powerful arguments to how there is no moral difference between the child you see drowning outside your door and, and the pool across, you know, the way, versus a child suffering on the other side of the world who you could do something for. So what could we do about that? And so I started to think about, look, you can't have moral rules that people won't sign up for. Moral rules have to be realistic about who humans are and what we are capable of. So that's one thought. Could we come to a collective pledge that people could agree on that if you met that standard, 
that was okay. You didn't have to go on stressing yourself. This was almost the start point. And what I looked at was, you know, religions arguably have wrestled with this for hundreds of years. They have come up with rules, which are, I think, a form of messy compromise between what is reasonable to expect of their followers and what morality demands. And so Judaism and Christianity have this tithing, 10% of your income you should give. Islam has a different but related thing, which is 2.5% of your net worth you should give. And so the, the first question I said was, okay, I'm not a religious person, but don't I aspire to have moral standards that are at least as high as the religions? Don't we? Mm-hmm. I think we do. So what would happen if we had a pledge that was actually the higher of 10% of income or 2.5% of net worth? Now, view that as an aspirational pledge for people who have got to a certain stage in life where they've paid off their debt, they're, kind of com- you know, they're, they're comfortable, they can afford to have these thoughts. What could that pledge achieve? So I did some research. I tracked down this incredible woman, Natalie Cargill, who has a thing called Longview Philanthropy. She did the research on this. This pledge, if it was out there widely among the wealthier people in the world, would raise in total actually $10 trillion annually. It's about 10 x Annually, $10 trillion annually. annually. About 10x of what we're giving away. I said, well, okay, not everyone's going to do this. What if a third of the people did that? What could you do philanthropically with $3.5 trillion annually? So this is what she figured out. She looked at every big problem that humankind faces and basically did the math and argued that we can solve every single one of those problems for $3.5 trillion of philanthropy a year. So you can debate her actual suggestions and so forth endlessly, but assume for a minute that that is true, that at $3.5 trillion of philanthropy, at that point you don't need more philanthropy. The bottleneck to making change is more about execution. Then, wait a sec, this pledge would actually do the trick. The ancient religions got their numbers right, that we are wealthy enough humankind, if they made that pledge, we could actually address all of the problems we face. So I find that, yes, it's daunting. It's a lot of money. Many people are completely daunted by that. But I'm convinced that collectively we could aim to step up to that. And if we did, it would be enough. We could actually get over what I fear stops a lot of people even beginning a generosity journey, which is the fear that you're opening yourself up to endless obligation. And that is no fun at all. You don't have to. If we could just agree on that pledge, and then you have this thrilling, thrilling, thrilling project of how to spend this money in ways that will be utterly amazing and make us dream of a beautiful future where we are planting a trillion trees. When we are dealing with animal cruelty, we are dealing with global poverty and inequality. You pick your issue that you care about, climate change. She's convincing that most of the things that we could do can be done with this money. You know, it's basically leveraging government in this case and companies and so forth. But it's the completely thrilling agenda. And so anyway, that's where I've ended up is there's a chapter called The Pledge That Could Change Everything. I encourage people to go. There's a website, givingwhatwecan.org, has for years been urging people to give 10% of income. They've agreed now, they've added in this wealth pledge as an addition possibility that you can sign up for. My wife and I have signed up to do this now. Hire those two. Go, Go and do it and tell friends to do it. Because if we do this, that is our financial obligations taken care of. And then something else magical happens. And I'm sorry, I'm going on. So something else magical happens, which is that you are forced to shift your financial giving to being more strategic. Instead of right now, someone, a friend or someone we were moved and we thought, oh God, I better write a check for that. It's not effective. Hmm. Plan your financial giving. Look for the organizations that are effective. There, there is an order of magnitude plus difference in effectiveness that can happen if you're thoughtful. So just by making a pledge, even if it's 1% of your income, it will shift you to strategic mindset. I think that's a powerful thing too. Incredibly powerful idea. Just before we leave, how do people find out more? Because you've created actually a remarkable set of assets. What's the website that people should go to? 
that the website is infectiousgenerosity.org. One thing you'll find there, as well as, you know, ways of buying the book from your favorite bookseller, whatever, there's an AI there, an AI agent called Tig, the, the infectious generosity guru. Tig is great fun to play with. It helps you brainstorm what you can do, given your skill set and your passions and your interests. It's given already me lots of ideas, including the idea I went out on social media with today. One woman who had played with it said it, it had changed her life. So play with that. Like, it's fun. It, it can... AI can do good things. Well, on that note, I want to thank the audience for being generous with your time to be here, to come to the Commonwealth Club. If you'd like to find out more about our events, go to the website, commonwealthclub.org. And there's so much more great content for these are online. Hope you'll come and visit us here for an in-person event. There's so many great things that are happening. Chris, I want to thank you for writing this book, and I encourage all of you to pick up a copy of the book made possible here by the Long Now Foundation and the Broad Family. So thank you so much, and appreciate you being here at the club. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, DJ. Thank you. That's right. That was really good. All right. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work. Help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org slash donate. Think your way around the world with our travel program to exciting domestic and international destinations. When you're in the Bay Area, please join us for live events at our home on the waterfront. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support.